morning, friends and members, and welcome to the podcast service of the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. It's my pleasure to invite you into our worship space, wherever you are. Joined this morning by Margaret, who you just heard play that beautiful prelude, and and Donica and Julie, of course. I invite you now to join us in our chalice lighting. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Our opening hymn this morning is From Age to Age. You're welcome to sing wherever you are. everyone, it's Julie. Today I want to talk to you about a man named Martin Luther King Jr. This is a name that most of us are familiar with. We've heard stories about this man, and we know that tomorrow is a national holiday honoring him. But at one time, the man, Martin Luther King, was just a boy. He grew up to be a great man, but things weren't all that great in the world while he was growing up. Many people weren't being treated fairly. Some people would look at the color of someone's skin and decide how they would treat that person or if they would even be their friend. That didn't make Martin Luther King Jr. feel good. It didn't make a lot of people feel good. But Martin Luther King Jr.'s parents helped him grow up. 
They helped keep him safe because he was very accident prone. They encouraged him to read books, and they helped him understand hard things that were happening in the world around him. His mother taught him that he was as good as anyone and to never feel that he was less than anyone else. His parents taught him about love and took him to church. Martin Luther King Jr. grew up to be a minister who helped a lot of other people learn about love. When he was an adult, he looked around and thought, things should be better. He used his imagination to dream a different type of world and life for himself and his children and his children's children. He wanted things to change, so he took action. He decided that instead of spreading hate, he would spread love. He wanted to bring people together. Where people were hurting, he stepped in to help. He walked arm in arm with all types of people. Sometimes it didn't go well, but he kept going. Sometimes he even ended up in jail, but he kept going. Some people didn't like him or what he was saying, but he kept going. Some days were hard, but he kept going. He had decided to stick with love, and that's what love does. It keeps going, even when things get dark. He kept going, using love and his imagination to dream a better life. He also kept going by telling the truth. He told the truth even when people didn't like what he was saying, and even when the truth was hard to say out loud. Things did get pretty dark for Martin Luther King Jr. He understood that even when things got dark and really hard, he had control over the way he responded and the way he showed up in the world. Martin Luther King Jr.'s response to hard things was awesome. He, he helped to change things. He dreamed and kept sharing his dreams, and they became not just his dreams, but a lot of other people's dreams, too. He imagined dreams like, one day in the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And that my four little children one day will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And one day, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. We know that while some things have changed since Martin Luther King Jr. talked about his dreams, some things haven't. If we are brave enough to tell the truth, we would say that still today, some people look at the color of someone's skin and decide how they will treat that person or whether they'll be their friend. So maybe all of us could use our imaginations to dream a more fair and just world like Martin Luther King Jr. did. And then we could take action, even if it's in a small way. And when things get hard, we could hold on to love and our dreams and the truth. 
If we all did that, just imagine all the things we could change. Now we'll sing our children's song. I'd like to invite everyone into a spirit of prayer and meditation. Just take a moment to stop wherever you are. Center yourself as is your custom. Let us journey into silence together with these words. Boundless, patient breath of compassion. Search us and know us. Let compassion be with us when we sit down and when we rise up. Let it discern our every thought and be acquainted with all our ways even before we speak. Let it fill our prayers. And still we need to speak the words that fill our hearts when our grief is more than we can bear. Our breaking hearts cry out and we plead for those whose lives are filled with pain. We pray for children in refugee camps, for the wounded and dying in places of war, for the hungry and homeless in our country and in our city. We pray for warriors and peacemakers, for those in prison and for those who guard them, for those who make laws and for those who must obey them. Aloud and in silence, we patiently practice praying for the healing of the world. Please join me in a spirit of prayer and silent meditation now. Amen.
This morning, I plan to read from the prophet Amos, the fifth chapter and the eighth chapter. In the fifth, I'll be reading from the 21st to the 24th verse, and in the eighth, from the fourth to the eighth. And the prophet writes, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has shown by pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who lives in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? Therein ends our reading. So last week I came across an article by James Smith. He's a philosophy and religion professor at Calvin College. 
His article is interested in how we see and how we regard others and how we have a terrible tendency to dehumanize often without knowing the person who after one quick glance comes to be regarded as subhuman. Famously in Luke's gospel, Jesus is asked by a lawyer, and who is my neighbor? Jesus responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan about a traveler who's been stripped naked, beaten, and left for dead on a roadside. A priest and later a Levite walk past the dying man, and instead of seeing someone in need, they ignore him as if he's a heap of garbage. Finally, the Samaritan happens upon the broken man and shows him mercy. In a sermon delivered to the congregation at the Riverside Church in New York City in 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. preached on the Good Samaritan, saying, and I quote, a true revolution of values will call us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadsides, but that will only be an initial act. True compassion, says Dr. King, is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produced beggars needs restructuring. That Martin Luther King Jr. and Inauguration Day occur so close this year is, of course, an accident. But it certainly opens the door for homiletical musings, which is what I intend to do this morning. So as this Sunday approached, I decided to spend some time with Amos, one of Dr. King's favorite biblical prophets. I can't help but I I can't help but admit that I find Amos's words, I hate, I despise your festivals, particularly unsettling, especially now that Washington, D.C. is guarded by the military and public buildings are surrounded by barbed wire. Meanwhile, beyond those protected areas, 40 million Americans live in poverty. 12 million are unemployed and deaths due to COVID-19 are setting records nearly every day. I thought I'd do something I seldom do and situate this morning's reading. After all, Amos, who we heard from a moment ago, was a real person who lived in a real place at a real time. Therefore, a few details might be helpful. Amos wasn't born a prophet. Like most prophets, he was just going about his business when God plucked him up. He lived in the city of Tekoa, which is in the hill country just south of Bethlehem. Way back in the 8th century, the era in which Amos lived, Israel was divided in two. The kingdom of Judah in the south ruled by Uzziah, and the kingdom of Israel in the north ruled by Jeroboam II. By all accounts, this was a peaceful and prosperous era. At least it was for a few. The rulers, and by that I mean the priests and Levites and upper classes, lived high on the hog. And this was achieved through exploitation of the land and the working classes. This peace and prosperity for the few came at the expense of the many. This should sound familiar. When Amos embarks on his prophetic ministry, he travels to Israel and Judah and tells the leaders that any society that fails to live up to its values and covenants has an urgent problem. We should worry, Amos tells us, 
Because left unchecked, circumstances in which the few prosper while the many suffer will one day result in everyone's destruction. Nobody listened, of course, but history does show that Amos was right. His prophecy eventually came true. The kingdoms were destroyed because they were too distracted by greed and self-interest. What Israel and Judah claimed to stand for was justice and righteousness. But in reality, most people were forced to live in fear. They were poor, sick, living paycheck to paycheck, and they were anxious. You can say a lot of things about that, but you can't say it's just and you can't say it's right. Amos, by the way, wasn't some religious radical. By all accounts, he was a deeply conservative man, a herdsman and a lumberjack by trade. But when it came to prophecy, he was a powerhouse, telling kings and politicians and money-grubbing priests that God will not be domesticated by policy or agenda and God will not bend to ideology or intellectual propositions. Amos says over and over that no nation, not Israel, not Rome, not Judah, not the United States, no nation is exceptional because in God's cosmic formula there is no such thing as an exceptional nation. Amos says that God's restoration isn't for a certain group of people in a certain part of the globe because God's restoration is for creation. All of it, period. Amos's message of cosmic love is woven throughout Dr. King's ministry and exemplified by a phrase he made famous in a sermon preached to the congregation at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. in 1968. Dr. King said that all of us are engaged in a single garment of destiny. For Amos and Dr. King, God's restoration is a cosmic restoration. Despite the many similarities between world religions, one of the singular things about Judaism and Christianity is the prophets. There is nothing like them in any other religion. They're unique in that they call out, they criticize, and they pull back the curtain on humankind's unfortunate tendency to neglect its values and covenants, to dehumanize people, to walk past the broken and hurting in our midst. Prophets remind us that we've always torn ourselves apart by every conceivable ethnic and demographic boundary. The income gap always seems to be getting bigger. People live in segregated communities. The elderly are mostly cut off from public life, and shootings happen so frequently they barely last two days in the news cycle before we move on to the next thing. When will we learn? That is the prophet's refrain. So this past week, with inauguration and Martin Luther King Jr. Day approaching, and the prophet Amos swirling around in my head, I stopped by the neighbor's place, which is one of Wausau's finest community centers. I spent the afternoon helping pass out food, and by day's end, more than 80 families had stopped by for food and diapers and hygiene products. 80 families. I asked, and they told me that that is an average number. And this is an amazing ministry, and you should support them often and in any way you can. But after that experience, I went home, and I sat down, and I did the math. They average 80 people per day. 
They're open four days a week, 52 weeks a year, which means they're serving more than 16,000 times a year. 16,000. I hate, I despise your festivals, Amos would say to that. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. You trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land. There is a sickness in society, and it's not just COVID-19. James Smith, whose article I mentioned earlier, makes this argument, and his thinking is validated by the life and teaching of Dr. King and Amos. What Mr. Smith says is that people have a tendency to glance at someone and immediately assume everything about them. And what makes this terrifying is that these careless assumptions shape our action and our inaction in the world. How else can we explain so much of the rhetoric these days? On the left and the right, we're often shown portrayals of people as threats and competitors, dehumanizing people who are different. It's these habits of perception that, in a way, they train us slowly over time to imagine that the other is an invader, a competitor, and an adversary. It's no wonder our tendency has become individualism, egoism, and self-preservation. The world, after all, is made in the image we make it, and the image we've made is one of suffering, suffering from without and suffering from within. My wife and I are currently taking a class online with the Buddhist nun Pima Chodron. And in the first minutes of the very first lesson, she talks about suffering like this. She says, and I quote, There is suffering at all levels. Suffering at the outer level, material things, hunger, thirst, abuse, neglect, violence, and illness but also at the level of waking up from ignorant patterns that just keep going round and round, lifetime after lifetime, so that we stay stuck in the same repetitive patterns seemingly forever. If I may summarize, people who do not transform their suffering transmit it. To rescue ourselves from this pattern, we must acknowledge that most of us are quite young in our religious journeys. We get wrapped up in what the Franciscan priest Richard Rohr calls the early stages. In these stages, it's all about the self and egoism, who I am. But this is just the beginning. Spiritual depth comes to those who substitute religion's early pursuits for its later wisdom. Wisdom, which is love of neighbor, love of that which is greater than us. In other words, it means that a part of us gets smaller so that others can live larger. But this turn is difficult in a culture that elevates politics and ego and consumerism and personal feelings to the level of a religion. Now let me be clear. I do not, nor do I claim to have the solution to this moral pandemic. But I do know that the prophets of our faith laid it out for us long ago, and they promised that whatever it is that ills us cannot be satisfied by turning inwards. Our need to feel morally superior will never satisfy us either, nor will the need to be right or the need to project a positive image to others. There's an old saying that if you want to guarantee the demise of anything, then do nothing. 
And what I am advocating for is the opposite of nothing. And so if you're willing to try something rather than nothing, here's the suggestion that you might want to start with. Think about the end. You heard me right. I want you to think about death. The other day I was listening on the radio to the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry. He told a charming story about growing up in the South and going to church on Sundays. Bishop Curry said that back then the old preacher he and his family listened to for decades used to often say that if you want to change, first imagine you are face to face with your headstone. And so you look down at that headstone and you see your birthday and the date of your death. Your birthday doesn't matter all that much and neither does the day of your death. What matters, the old preacher would say, is what you did with the dash between those dates. That's the question. What are you doing with the dash? That's a question for you to decide, but here's what I believe. I believe we're all wrapped up in a single garment of destiny, whether we like it or not. Cosmic justice is at work. You don't have to think like Dr. King or Amos or Bishop Curry. And there's more than one path, as the poet Robert Frost showed us. But if we want to be a part of the weight that continues to bend the moral arc of the universe towards justice, then we are going to have to pry ourselves from the two easy defaults of individualism, egoism, and self-preservation and turn, repent, to use the prophet's words. What I'm describing is not for the faint of heart because in order to stop the plague of dehumanization, we have to transform so that we don't transmit. My belief is that church people need to expand our sense of moral leadership and vision. Don Kagan is a professor of history and classics at Yale, and he warns that if religion and reason were to disappear from society, the only thing that would remain is will and power. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like to see less will and power and more reason and religion for a change. Real religion, not lies bundled up in the name of this or that party or politician, this or that hidden agenda, but true religion rooted in cosmic love for creation beyond divisions, religion practiced by a people who uphold a moral framework rooted in the ancient covenants of justice and righteousness. You see, we are called to be Samaritans. We are called to call out lies, to ensure those in power don't abuse it. And on days like Inauguration Day, we're here to remind the world that we are woven in one fabric and that God's favor is for creation, all of it. Just before Jesus tells his parable of the Good Samaritan, that pesky lawyer asked this question. He says, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And this is the answer. You shall love God, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the old preacher was getting at. Life. What will you do with your dash? Amen. You're welcome to join wherever you are and singing our closing hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing.
Randock Lovely wrote, Let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now keepers of the dream. The mission and ministries of the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau are made possible by the generosity of its friends and members. I invite you to give as you are able. You're welcome to stop by our website where you can find information about how you can make a gift to the church. I thank you in advance and invite you to sing our doxology now. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away.